Welcome to the Specify Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Tats Nakagawa of Castagra Products. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and construction industry. Today's guest is Ralph Snowbeck. He's a registered roof consultant and a roofing educator. All right, uh, Rolf, thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. Tats, thanks for having me. Hope you're having a great day. <laughs> so it piqued my curiosity because you put up this post that talked about the history of roofing, but more particularly in and around warranties and, and then the history. So Walk me through that. What sort of prompted you to originally create that video or post? Well, from the contracting end of the world, traditionally, what my experience has been is is that building owners make a buying decision based upon a warranty. They get a piece of paper that says that the product is guaranteed for 10, 15, or 20 years, typically. And so that becomes the first litmus test is, is it? got a warranty. And and then the second thing is, who's got the cheapest price? And my point in the video was to point out that historically, you know, the, the commercial flat roofing industry in the United States has been here in excess of uh, 150 years, 170 years. And up until 40 years ago, there were no warranties. So I was kind of talking about what's what changed in the market that that caused warranties to be to be here and to kind of maybe question how should people be buying roofs? Is it, should it be based upon the piece of paper or actually the product that they're putting down? So that's kind of the conversation I wanted to start. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because you know I we've been part of other industries and roofing is is so heavily focused on warranties or the discussions are on ra- warranties are so huge because some of the other areas that we were part of water and wastewater, oil and gas, you know, even flooring, the warranties conversation is just not the same. So I'm really interested to, uh, to hear your perspective on this. So, and I, and I, that's interesting that you mentioned that, that in other industries you're involved with it, that, that the buying process is different. Okay. It is. So may, maybe it's unique to the roofing industry. What I found interesting, and I've I did another video about this some time ago, where it talked about how people buy things in the roofing industry, and and I've been blessed. I've been in the industry now, middle of April will be forty five years, and I spent seventeen years on what I call the design side of the fence. I always made I always tell people there's three sides of the fence in roofing. There's the design side, con- that would be consultants, architects, engineers that come up with the plans and specs for projects. There's the contractors that actually install it. And there's the manufacturers that make the product that contractors install. So those are the three sides. I've spent 17 years on the design side as a professional consultant and then, you know, 28 or so now on the contracting side. And what I found is that how people buy consulting services, design services is fundamentally different than how they hire a roofing contractor. So what I was on the, the consulting side of the fence, a building owner would identify a problem and then would develop a list of what would be the best type of consultant to hire, what should their qualifications be, what are we going to ask them to do, and then they put out a, a request for qualifications, first of all, and they get 
those RFQs back where different design companies make the case on why they're best suited to help them find a solution and design design the proper fix. They go through those RFQs. They they If they get 10 of them, they'll go through them, and they, they might force rank a list of five and say, from what they wrote down, these are the five most qualified companies to help us. Then they go through an interview process and and then actually force rank it based upon what they wrote down and what we've now had conversation with them about. You know, here's the first most qualified company, second, third, fourth, fifth. Then the last step is they, they uh, sit down and say, with the person that was most qualified, and say, you're the most qualified, what's your fee? And then negotiate it. And if they can't come to an agreeable fee, then they go to the second one or the third one. But there's a relationship between quality, service, and expectation and price. When I came to the contracting side, I assumed that the buying process was the same. And what I I was dumbfounded because I would go in and see building owners, some cases, people that I'd worked with before, and being pre-qualified and, and being getting best value for money, that was out the door. It was purely a function of, can you get me a roof with a warranty? Great. What's your price? You're not the low guy, you're out. So that's kind of the reason why I originally had done that video, because people ask me, you know, why are warranties here and, and how do they affect the business? I think by and large, the reason that most building owners are happy with their professional consultants and most by and large are not happy with contractors is because they buy those services differently. Yeah. You must know examples of people that do it the same way as the professional services. Is is that the case? Are there any examples you can think of? There, there, we have, you know, without giving away names or stuff, there yeah. are, we do have some clients that work with us based upon the qualifications. And it's usually because they might be in the food process business or, or, you know, like data center business, that type of thing, where if they get a drop of water in, you know, telecommunications, that type of thing, if they get a drop of water in, you knock out everybody's computer service. There's no phone service in Chicago. They have to recall all the product that came out of a food plant. Those type of companies tend to be focused on quality of the contractor, as well as the product, as well as the design. Unfortunately, the warranties have kind of trained people to have that be the only litmus test in a lot of cases. Yeah, for sure. When did that transition occur and what was happening before that transition? Okay, so let me dig in and um, you'll excuse me but I like to tell stories. So I love stories. I, I love stories. So what, you know, how did we get to that point? And when I've talked about the, the history of roofing, basically from 1850 to about 1970, we put built up roofs down in, in, in North America, either hot asphalt or hot pitch. And those were never warrantied, but there was changes throughout, throughout that period. So between about 1850 and 1870, you know, 150 years ago, they just mopped out felts onto a roof. Two things really happened. We had the Great Chicago Fire. And when what they found out is that buildings were not burning down building to building to building through the wall. One building would burn down, one home would burn down, sparks would flow, fly through the air and catch a roof on fire six blocks away. And that roof would, that building would burn down from the roof down and sparks from that. So it hopscotched across the city and wiped out the city of Chicago. So that was one thing. But then you go uh, 
down along the Mississippi River to um, New Orleans, uh, where they had the paddle wheelers, there were sparks coming out of the from the boilers on the steamships and catching the, the roofs on fire and buildings and burning those buildings down from the roof down. So the first attempt to make roofs fireproof was to put rock up on the roof, just so that when those embers hit the roof, it would hit stone and and they would extinguish and, and not start the building on fire. So that was the first change. But basically from then about 1870 till the 1940s, roofs were put down and they were typically, you know, four or five plies and they just lasted forever and worked well. In the 40s, a couple of things changed. Our industry changed. We started to go from coal to oil for heating buildings and factories. So the old coal tar pitch that everybody knew, there was uh, less in, in the steel process. They used coal tar pitch from the uh, coking process. There was less pitch available. And the price of asphalt was going up because there was competition for the uh, oil market. That caused the price of pitch to go up because there was not as much of it. And it caused the, caused the price of asphalt to go up. So the natural knee-jerk reaction is to let's put in a little less of those into the roof. So instead of a four-ply or five-ply roof, it went to a four-ply roof, to a three-ply roof, to a two-ply roof. So that was one change. The other thing is, if you go back in time, you hear people talk about rag velts. And they were physically made out of rags because we actually had a textile market and textile industry in the South in the United States. And those rags went into rag felt. Well, eventually that went away. And it turned into paper felt, which was still called rag felt. So what happened? You got to the 40s, we put down fewer plies, and we started putting down rag felts that weren't actually rag felts, they were paper. And then they cut down the number of them. And, and there was an unwritten rule that was broken that nobody knew about, which is on a built-up roof, if you get about less than 200 pounds tensile strength, the roof will tear. Fewer plies, less strong felt. Roof started splitting, blistering, doing all of these things. And it got worse in the 50s and 60s and 70s because the price of asphalt kept going up. Uh, we had the oil embargo in the 70s. Uh, OPEC raised the price of oil. You know, they kept cheapening up the roof. Roof stopped working. In Europe, they were had been playing in the 60s with single-ply alternatives or modified asphalt alternatives. That started coming to the States. And around 1980... Hundreds of manufacturers started selling single-ply or modified asphalt products in the United States. That's when the warranties came into vogue because building owners said, hey, this is great. We're willing to try something new, but we've never heard of this stuff. How do we know it'll last? Manufacturers came out with a piece of paper that says, we guarantee it. You buy a car, you get a warranty. We're going to give you a warranty with the roof. And that's kind of how we got there. Unfortunately, What's happened now since 1980 is, is that everybody's become accustomed to buying the warranty and not the roof. So I'm done telling that story. <laughs> That's how we got there. In your point of view, how do we start to, to change that? Because I know obviously, you know, you're advocating for more of a holistic you know, evaluation of contractor still skill as a starting point. Who do we need to convince? How do we approach? changing some of this mindset? I think it's purely an education thing. That's part of what I, I hope we're doing here. Part of what I try to do on LinkedIn is, is to provide that kind of knowledge to get people to take a step back and think, hey, when we we buy a warranty, more often than not, the, the building owner isn't happy with the end result. So is that really the way to buy it? And, and just 
try to work with people and get them to understand, uh, interview who you're going to hire, whether that's the contractor, whether that's the uh, manufacturer, uh, or the uh, the consulting uh, firm that you bring with. Everybody has a niche which, where it's their natural place to be and uh, where they've got experience. Let people you know, show what they're good at, and then building owners can make better decisions. Mm, for sure. Now, Rolf, you've been doing a lot of social media and, and spreading, and I, at least the, the last couple of years, you've stepped that up. What's, what's the vision there? Uh, in simplest terms, I've spent the last 40 years basically being a road warrior, talking to people. Some of them choose to work with me, some don't, but uh, a good friend of mine asked me a couple weeks ago, what do I tr- attribute my success to? And it's like, I'm always prospecting. I'm always cold calling. I'm always looking for a new piece of business. And she goes, don't think of it as cold calling. Think of it as treasure hunting. So I've been treasure hunting, if you will, for the last 40 years all over all over the country in Canada. Three years ago, this funny pandemic thing started. So what was the fundamental change? I wasn't allowed to get in front of people anymore. So I'd always dabbled a little bit in social media, but that was really the driver is that if I need to make a living, I got I have to find a new way to communicate with people. If you told me three years ago that I'd be doing it this way, I would I would have laughed. It's like, why? Well, like the dinosaurs, evolve or die. I don't want to be like a dinosaur. Yeah, my guess is you want to continue to do this and figure out how you can bring this into your adapted style. Correct. And and I guess the thing that's a little bit scary is that I think to succeed and to keep succeeding, you have to break out of your comfort zone and try new things. And I'm getting very comfortable with this, which means I've got to try something else. What's, what do you have in mind? You know, I'm actually going to use you probably as a little bit of a role model. I need to do some live interviews and stuff and go from there. And, and the question, traditionally, I've done like educational seminars in front of groups of people. 100 people in an auditorium or something, you know, does it get to the point where I'm doing educational seminars for people everywhere? And, you know, from, from my, uh, my comfortable office, I don't know, we'll figure that out. But uh, yeah, yeah, if I get too comfortable, then uh, I'm not, I'm not growing. Yeah. And so when, when the pandemic happened, and, you know, you were forced to find new ways, I mean, what was that transition like? Did did you instantly move into it, or was it gradual? Or I'm just trying to visualize Rolf going through that. And did you have help making this transition? Help would be I got a call from uh, the president of Tecta uh, at that time, maybe a Monday or two before we shut down the country, and. Part of my thing is that I have to turn in a weekly report every Monday of what I did last week, what my plans are for this week, and what my travel schedule is. And Mark was looking at this and going, hey, uh, Rolf, according to this, you're going to be in L.A., Phoenix, Boston, Denver, and Fort Lauderdale in the next three weeks. I said, yes, sir. And he goes, you're not getting on a plane. You know, so what do you mean? He goes, I'm afraid people that this is going to get really bad. I'm shutting it down. Nobody's traveling. Okay. So what's what was the first impetus? I was... I needed to change how I needed to go out and do things. So I had dabbled a little bit in social media. At that point, it's like I needed to dive in. And I know things on the internet last forever. They don't ever go away. But 
when I go back and look at some of the stuff I posted three years ago, I was pretty proud of it at the time. Now it's really embarrassing. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, like I said, evolve or die. And, um, you know, I've been at it for a long time and I don't, I don't intend to go anywhere for another 10 or 15 years. So I got to keep learning and uh, I'd prefer to be on the cutting edge. Yeah. That's awesome. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that uh, you wanted to cover or share? My, my bride and I just celebrated our anniversary this weekend. I'm sure nobody cares about that, but we're, uh, we're like four and a half times the national average. Typical marriage lasts for seven years and that, that isn't, uh, we're nowhere, we're, we're in a very good place. So uh, that's good. You know, as far as the industry is concerned, I got to tell you, there's challenges out there because it's hard to get younger people in. But as an industry, we need to encourage people to get in. I got into the roofing industry by accident, and 45 years later, I'm still here. And uh, I think we, we need to find ways to bring people in and, and just tell them our stories. It's like we didn't nobody want nobody in sixth grade says I want to grow up and be a roofer one day. OK, but uh, we need to do a better job of recruiting. And when we do get people into the fold, actively educate and train them so they can grow through the business. They may start pushing a broom in a parking lot uh, around a dumpster, but there's no reason they can't become uh, a journeyman, become a foreman, become an estimator, become a project manager and, and run their own company at some point. So that's our challenge as, as an industry is to get people in and let them know there's a career path out there ahead of them. Perfect. Thanks, Ralph. Thank you for listening to the Specify Growth Podcast today. Make sure you check out youtube.com forward slash Tats Talks for video of today's podcast. Hit the subscribe button for upcoming episodes. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.